Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 51. The airstrikes on the targets for Operation Protea have ended, and now the mechanized units will begin their move on the targets Zangongo and Piu Piu. 3 2 Battalion has already cleared the bunkers and trench positions in the north of Zangongo, as you heard last episode. Attacking westward on the northern flank of Battle Group 20 was Battle Group 40 under command of Commandant Dion Ferreira. They were to fight through the most northern Fapla defences at Sangongo and capture the old Portuguese fort overlooking the river. The fort was situated on high ground with an excellent view of the critical bridge across the Kineni River and the main road leading from Humbe into Sangongo. Whomever controlled this fort could influence the course of the battle with direct fire, small arms and short-range mortars. The high ground at the fort and to the south of the main road adjacent to the river were important tactical features, either for defence or attack. And this included a high-rise water tower just to the south of the main road next to the river, which was an excellent observation post over the town. The South Africans left it standing because they were going to use it. This high-rising stretch of ground adjacent to the Kineni formed the most western edge of the Zangongo defences. Later on, Battle Group 1-0 would use the river and the high ground in combination for the defence of Zangongo once it was taken. The small town of Piupu, 10 kilometres to the north, also nestled alongside the Kineni River, and Battle Group 3-0 was due for a stiff fight there. It was in Piupu that Fapla could deploy half a dozen T-34 tanks, which were intercepted, though, as they started heading south to intervene in the battle for Zangongo. The Angolans at Piupu were defeated, and large quantities of enemy stock and ammunition were captured. However, it took two days of fighting for SADF battle groups 2 and 4-0 to secure Sangonga. Dipanon's 2-0 battle group began to storm the trenches from an easterly position, but found them empty at first. The airstrike had shaken Fapla and Plan, and they had moved into concentrated areas further to the west and to the south. The SADF objectives were focused on Fapla's deep layers of defences to the south and at the airfield. Remember, the South Africans had initially begun their assault from the east and the north, as well as the northwest, not from the south, which was what Fapla and Plan had expected. While the Angolans were quite aware that a large SADF invasion was imminent before Operation Protea, they had no idea exactly where the first assaults would begin. To the south of Zangongo, Fapla had laid a system of defensive minefields, calculating that a deliberate attack would come from there. The layout of their phalanxes of interlocking trenches and reinforced concrete bunker systems faced the wrong way. The Impalas had already attacked anti-aircraft sites around Piu Piu with rockets. Then they focused on the town of Humbe, which we heard last episode was seized by the SADF shortly afterwards. As the mechanized units moved forward, machine gun and AK-47 fire increased until suddenly the chatter of a single Soviet 23mm anti-aircraft gun stopped Battle Group 2-0 dead in its tracks. This weapon was extremely effective in the hands of a trained crew, and that's what faced the SADF at this moment. Two pairs of Mirage 3s were scrambled to attack these pockets of Fapla resistance, including the anti-aircraft gun holding up 2-0's progress, but the first pair only took off at 1400 hours 30, and that was to try and take out the 23mm gun. That was more than 40 minutes after the ground assault had asked for help, and Commandant Dipinar was angry about that, and somewhat disappointed when the Mirages missed their target. 
As two Zeros sheltered in place, troops watched the AA gun traverse and fire off rounds, bouncing across the felt and through the bush, then swiveled to fire at the SAFO's mirages and even a spotter plane. Twenty more minutes elapsed before a second group of mirages attempted to take out the single target once more they failed. Flying around overhead was a Bosbok spotter plane piloted by Captain Danny Loebscher, who thought he could lend a hand. They say ignorance is bliss because he thought he'd be flying towards a 14.5mm anti-aircraft weapon, far less accurate and less effective than the 23mm. As related by historian Leopold Skoltz, South African Air Force Mobile Air Operating Team Leader Speaker Jakobs asked Loebscher to see what he could do. Loebscher arrived to witness another attack on the gun by mirages and realized that the flummies, as they were known, the jet pilots, were shooting blind and the rockets were missing the gun by hundreds of meters. Loebscher knew that the forward air controller or FAC wasn't sure where the target was, so the Bosbok pilot decided he'd intervene by firing a smoke rocket at the 23mm. These are extremely inaccurate devices that travel at a leisurely 120 knots. Adding insult to injury, the Bosbok rocket missed the spot. Laubscher tried once more and missed once more. The Mirages were diving in at over 400 knots and their rockets were landing all over the felt as we watched from our vantage point down below. The 23mm was on a slight rise and had an excellent view over the flatland about. It was growing into a big problem. The 23mm would have caused multiple casualties had it been attacked head-on, what to do. Above, Laubscher was circling at 6,000 feet. The 23mm ignored him for the moment, focusing on the ground forces. He had four smoke rockets left and at first was thinking about firing all simultaneously. But that would have created even more confusion on the ground. So instead, Laubscher put the Bosbok into a steep dive, determined to head directly at the gun. There was a moment of madness, really. This weapon tears tanks and rattles to pieces, and here he was diving point-blank into its position. He survived the dive, fired the rocket, and pulled up. Later, he said, Looking back at the target, I noticed that the smoke of the rocket was coming out of the pit where the ak was deployed. Laubscha then confirmed to the mirages that the smoke was spot on the target, but he had no idea that his little smoke rocket had killed the crew. When the South African ground forces arrived at the 23mm position, they found the gunner sitting in his chair with a 68mm hole through his chest where the smoke rocket had entered. It was a freak shot. Laubscher told Skoltz after the war that the SA Air Force wanted to court-martial him for putting his plane in danger, while the Army wanted to give him a medal. He said the Army won the debate. He was awarded the honorous crooks. It was now two and a half hours after the attack had begun and Battle Group 2-0 were way behind time. As the mechanized force moved towards their targets, they took out three more 23mm guns and three T-34 tanks. The troops were on foot now, conducting fire and movement attacks effectively, advancing until all resistance ended. They seized control over the airfield, but SADF casualties were also increasing. The bunkers were stormed and cleared along with the trenches, then the SADF moved into town. The heavy fighting had slowed 2-0's approach, and Battle Group 3-0 was ordered to reinforce Dipinar, whose own reserve force had already been deployed. By dusk, Battle Groups 2-0 and 4-0 were in control of most of their positions around Zangongo. 200 Fapla and Plan had died, and three South Africans. 
More than a dozen of 3-2 Battalion's men had also died or been wounded in the assault, although the exact number remains disputed to this day. It was now time to push cautiously towards the Kuneni River, clear the area of possible enemy remnants, and then consolidate the position for the night. There was to be no rest for the weary just yet from both sides of the fence, so it seemed. As the SEDF units approached the river, some Fapla and Swapo soldiers were scrambling across the bridge and others swam across the crocodile-infested river. The enemy was picked off by Ratel machine guns, including the quartermaster of a Fapla unit who was caught in the lethal crossfire with complete ledger book under his arm. Many of the Fapla soldiers in full retreat were running across a flat floodplain to the west of the Kaneni River and the SADF needed to ensure that these men had withdrawn completely. After some of the retreating troops were cut down, the intelligence officers moved in to check on the bodies. One enemy soldier was alive. He was a platoon commander who dragged himself under a tree after being hit in the chest and the hand, but he was alive. Former 61 Mech commander Roland de Vries said later that he was badly wounded in the chest and his thumb was shot off, but he showed amazing tenacity. I could not help but admire the man. The Fapla commander was evacuated on a rattle and survived the battle and ended up in a POW facility. As the intelligence officers rifled through the pockets of the dead enemy soldiers, they found photos of their loved ones, letters from home and also military passbooks logging leave. This was exactly as the South Africans managed their troops and brought home to the men checking the bodies how professional soldiers worldwide are managed. I realized that they were soldiers and human beings just like us, said de Vries, who longed to be with their loved ones and who also looked forward to passes to go home as we did, that they also could not wait for a letter from a special person to arrive. It became plain to me that we were fighting human beings with families and feelings just like us and not necessarily evil indoctrinated communist-inspired socialists who were hell-bent on destroying South Africa. The same thing was going through my mind as we treated dozens of Fapla wounded that day. First we blow them up, shoot them, then we keep them alive. And many would turn into expert soldiers fighting for the South Africans. This is how wars work, particularly the Bush War back in the 1980s. As ops medics we were very busy that day. When the airfield was being stormed we received a radio call that an officer was down along with other SADF troops. We rushed to the position where an officer was already in a body bag. That was Captain Louis Haramsa. A second officer was wounded in the same incident that killed Haramsa. They had triggered a booby trap at the entrance to a trench. For those who've listened to the series from the start, I mentioned way back in episodes covering Op Savannah in 1975 that the Haramsa family paid a high price during the border war. First, Colonel Des Haramsa died on board a reconnaissance plane during Operation Savannah. And now his son had perished at Zangongo six years later during Operation Protea. For a man who'd survived the airdrop into Kasinga in 1978 and conventional and non-conventional combat, it was a booby trap that finished off one of South Africa's top soldiers. Some of his colleagues told me that they had pleaded with him not to enter the trench and wait for reinforcements, but he was watching the schedule and trying to hurry up the assault, which was already out by more than two hours. So it was now dusk on D-Day. The medics were drafted in to set up the commandant's tent. The engineers, or tiffies as they're known, had also set up their own camouflage nets nearby and their generators were humming along as they began to work on some of the vehicles that had broken down or taken hits. 
The officers gathered in the medic-constructed tent, drank coffee and focused on all-round defence and interlocking arcs of defensive fire. They were also generating the passwords, setting up radio watches, posting sentries and planning how they would react to an early warning of impending enemy counterattack. Finally, the logistics plans for the next 24 hours were drawn up. It had been an extremely long, exhausting night and day thus far for all of Task Force Alpha, grueling wear and tear on man and machine. Some of the soldiers lay dead on the other side of the Keneni. The gladdening news from across the river was that Battle Group 3-0 had captured Pew Pew. Task Force Alpha with Battle Groups 2 and 4-0 had partially taken Zangongo. As darkness drew in, occasional shots were fired, machine gun fire rippled at times and huge explosions continued to be heard. Tremors rolled across the river. The bridge over the Kaneni River by now had been secured from both sides by the South Africans. Major Leon de Blanche and the engineers from 25 Field Engineer Squadron were already placing the demolition charges onto the pillars and the surface area of the 800-metre-long bridge which spanned the Kaneni. The sappers were wasting no time. So let's step back for a moment and assess the overall plan and how things were going. The main attacks on Zangongo, Humba and Piu Piu were supposed to be completed by the 24th of August, 1981. Fall of Anjivo was supposed to follow only a few hours after the defeat of Zangongo as the next phase of the attack, and at the same time the enemy towards Kahama would be isolated. This, though, was going to take a little longer as Zangongo was proving difficult to overcome completely. Only after the destruction of Anjiva and secondary targets nearby would the SADF withdraw back south, but that could take up to two weeks. So the various battle schemes of the task forces were the following. D-Day plus one, the 25th of August, would see the bridge over the Kuneni River at Zangongo prepped for demolition. This was already done. Zangongo then needed to be defended until the end of Ops Protea, because this was the exposed western flank of the entire task force Alpha and Bravo. Then Onjiva should be taken by D plus 3 and defended until at least D plus 14. The mechanized units would then withdraw from Angola. Following this, the final phase was the counterinsurgency ingredient of the operation to be conducted solely against Swapo by Task Force Bravo. They'd focus on the bases along a line formed by Evali, Nahoni, Dover and Yonde, and codenamed Tango. Special forces, including those I mentioned last episode, were based in the enemy's rear at an unspecified bridge which was to be blown. Eventually, it was decided not to go ahead with this major act of sabotage because the political leadership back in Pretoria had changed their mind. There was already a growing chorus of international condemnation and blowing the bridge was seen to be unnecessary. The operators, as we called them, were not very happy when they found this out much later, as I recall. They'd set up charges on the bridge, then laid up overlooking this strategic point for more than a week, only to be told to stand down. And so, back to Zangongo, D-Day, 24th August. The sun was setting fast, and 2-0 and 4-0 began to settle down for the night. We dug foxholes, and in my case, I had joined a rifle command close to the Kuneni River. We were just below the crest of a small rise, looking down at the bridge and the river, with the main road winding past through thick bush. Little did we know what was in store for us before dawn the next morning. We learned that the town of Piu Piu had been taken by Battle Group 3-0, and that led to the Angolans' retreat, leaving a vast array of material. Included was 120,000 litres of diesel and 90,000 litres of petrol, 
300 tons of ammunition, three T-34 tanks, about half a dozen armored cars, and about the same number of armored personnel carriers were destroyed, along with several anti-aircraft guns. Then, as the armored column prepared for the night, an unusual scene unfolded. An elderly Angolan man rode towards Rolo and Tafris's battle group 1-0 on a dilapidated moped. He was not afraid, and rode right up to where de Vries stood with his officers, drinking coffee. As he rode round through the SADF mechanized units, soldiers merely stared at him, and he was not challenged. The reason why was that he was riding along with a little Portuguese boy. The moped halted and the old man climbed off. He didn't formally announce who he was, but he was dressed in a suit and had spectacles. He said he was from Humbe and had survived the 140mm shelling he'd taken by the SADF. He said this matter-of-factly without any trace of anger. Shock does strange things to people. On the motorcycle in front of him sat a small white boy who was dressed in tattered shorts and trousers. The old man said he was a schoolteacher who lived near Humbe and he was taking the child to safety. He had become the boy's stepfather after his family had been killed during the Civil War. His Portuguese parents had died in fighting between UNITA and the MPLA. The old man said that the local population, along with the military and the police, had fled Humbe ahead of the airstrikes after they read the pamphlets dropped by the SA Air Force. Before leaving, de Vries took a photograph of the child and the old man, who then popped the little Portuguese boy back on the moped, and they drove off back to Humbe. Explosions continued to rend the air, automatic weapons fired off at times, but nothing seemed to worry the two as they wound their way into the distance. Back in my bivouac, I found that the sandy Angolan soil ended about six inches deep, and my position was under large trees. Their roots were in the way. So I made the somewhat foolish decision to cease digging. Exhaustion had set in. We hadn't slept for 24 hours. Maybe my webbing, which I placed in front of the pathetic little hole, would suffice. I was to regret that laziness later that night. But that's for next episode. It's time now to halt and secure the perimeter. Please head over to my website, abwarpodcast.com. There's a link to send emails if you want to chat. Or you can direct message me on Twitter, at Des Lathan. So until next, Dotsins. Thank you.